Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Come on, you got one sentence in you. One. Writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey-o! hey All right, there they are. <laughs> I think they were just hiding because they are just afraid of your awesomeness. Yo, no, it's your awesomeness they're afraid right. of. Maybe yeah. it was a shock and awe of, oh my God, it's, right. it's, it's really them. They're, they're here. So welcome to the podcast. We are deep into spooky season now making all kinds of plans to try to shock and awe the neighborhood children to compete with our very overzealous neighbors in our new neighborhood. We I mean, to send at least a couple of these kids into therapy. That's I right. mean, at least, I mean, if the par- if there isn't at least one parent glaring at you at some point, you have That's not right. done Halloween correctly. So <laughs> I cannot wait to get started out. We're going to hire a witch for the balcony. We're going to have a fog machine. We are going to light this place up. Anyway, honey, why don't we talk about, you know, that thing we do at the beginning? What's going on? Okay. I, I, I like I, that. I like that. It is so good. It just gets me pumped up and it matches my mood usually. Sometimes I have to elevate my mood a little bit for the podcast, but today I'm feeling good. I'm feeling healthy. Thank goodness. I don't take that for granted. I had a cough that took a while to shake off after the last time I got sick. My energy level is high. Good. I'm kind of in an island space right before the UCLA term starts and my book tour for the reformatory, which is going to start in October. So this feels like a calm period. I'm just savoring being. You don't get many of them. I'm savoring being at home quietly, nowhere to go. Like I'm checking the calendar. Do I have to go anywhere? Do I have to go anywhere? It's like, oh, I get to stay here. So, uh, real quickly, I I know I just jumped into it, honey. Sorry. Uh, I'm working on a comic script for an indie comic. It's only 24 pages. And it's a real uh, education. You know, our our graphic novel, The Keeper, was adapted from a screenplay. So it was a really weird process where we turned in the screenplay. The artist went ahead and did the panels. And then we had to come behind him and write a comic script (laughs) based on the panels he had already drawn. Which, while that seemed like a bizarre process at the time to me, it's way easier than for me, a screenwriter and prose writer, trying to think in panels. So now I'm having to like, I don't have the panels to just describe anymore. I mean, I had an outline, but it's like, okay, what's in this panel? And it's, honey, it's involving math. You don't really visualize the page yet. I'm learning. It's, It's a new, it's a whole new thing. I'm always thrilled to be learning. But wow, it does feel like trying to get into flow state while you're wearing like a brick suit, you know, like very hard to move your arm here, move your arm there. It's she's ah. got a brick. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't know he was going to break out with the Commodores there. Okay. I got to give you more of that. 
I, I always have to shout out the Commodores. So that's what I'm sure my editor will be glad to hear. That's what I've been working on, as well as getting my syllabus together, meeting with my TAs, finally accepting the fact that I do have to start teaching <laughs> on September 28th, which I know a lot of y'all have been teaching for a while. So you're like, oh, huh, cry me a river. But hey, I've been on break and I'm, my break is over now pretty soon. So I'm a little sad about that. Oh, I can understand that. I, I don't have anything, you know, like that to announce. However, I'm holding up here, what I'm Ooh, holding up here pages. is the first paper printout of the Star Wars novel. It's only about 150 pages long at this point. Yes. But the the process that I go through is printing it out, going over it on paper, make, marking it up, inserting the marks into the manuscript, reading over the manuscript and, and, and polishing it again, then printing it out again. That cycle, once I'm in that cycle, I'm very comfortable. I've been through that many yeah. times. I've got, I've got 100 days to complete this book. And it feels perfectly fine, you know, at this point. But I do have to be sure to stay on that train. You know, I, I know you are. So this man here, can I, I'm going to tell on you a minute. He works all through the weekend. Like he does, like he has a page quota that he used to get to this point, And that page quota does not stop on Saturday. Maybe it stops on Sunday, but I don't Sometimes even think Sometimes it does. But it, I think that part of the reason I'm pushing so hard is that I know that as soon as the strike ends, <clears throat> work yes. is going to close. And yes. I don't know how much work it's going to be. I mean, we've got one project that is connected with, with auto, so it's not, it's not covered by the screen. You know, it's not, it's not part of the strike at all. Right. It's, happens, then we will have to produce a 30-minute pilot, and that won't be too hard. I want to take lead on that, too. So I've got to get ahead on the Star Wars project and make sure I'm, I'm pushing the, the project with Larry Niven forward, and then we might have a third project. So it, it, what might end up happening is the creation of a really extensive outline, and then you take the first shot as possible. And but, then with Audible, again, that's a new format. I mean, it's similar, but it's an audio script. And it'll have some slight differences, and, and that'll be fun. It's just all learning. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard entirely too many movies transplanted to, to audio for me to think it's going to be that difficult. You know, it, it's just do it, and we'll go through afterwards and figure it out. You know, yeah, we'll, we'll always be figuring it out. That's we'll what we do. That's how we roll. You know, that's, you know, so it's always be learning, always be doing, always be teaching. Yes. Um, you know, so by the time you listen to this, we will have taught our screenwriting workshop. No, oh, and it will have gone amazingly. Yeah, and, and we will have, <laughs> you can still, you'll still be able to use the www.hollywoodloophole.com to be able to listen to the replay. Oh, that's nice. To watch, to watch the replay of it. We will, we will be selling, you know, links to the, to the replay. Uh, right. So, you know, we'll figure all that out. But right now we're just kind of trying to figure out how can we be of the greatest service to our community, who, which we yes. love. Yes, yes. And it's it's going to be fantastic. So I won't go too much into that since it's too late for y'all to sign up to do it live. <laughs> but you had your chance. We told you about it last we, week. We were doing our best. We were doing our Absolutely. best. Absolutely. So, honey, I'm looking at our top five performing uh, podcast today, which is uh, uh, something I, I look at pretty obsessively. And here's where we stand. Our number one, which has stayed at number one ever since she was here, Lee Bardugo. Mm. Number one. Uh, number two, very popular, is our podcast, It's Spooky Season, Secrets to Writing Great Horror, okay. which, what a dink! because today's is going to be Secrets to Writing Great Science Fiction. So hey. we're going to have another strong one there for writers. After that is Gabino Iglesias, Stephen Graham Jones, and Hilliard Guess. But the, the top two are, are far and away, like, performing the best and, and by a pretty good margin. And it's good to know that our podcasts perform well, both when we have guests and when it's just us. Yeah, it is. I mean, I we're doing the best we can to bring people to you. They're not just insiders, but people who we feel like we can have a good conversation with. Good yes. jazz, in other words. So that... You're always getting the feeling that you're listening in on a conversation between friends who share professional interests. Yes. Uh, I feel like that's the best way to give you the best thing that we that we can. Uh, and it also works for us in terms of being able to have these people on the show. Every one of these broadcasts, we, we now have 90 broadcasts. We're this is our 90th 
That's episode. right. Episode. Hey. So that's we have a We have a backlog of of wisdom about the industry that is amazing right now. Whether it's publishing or television and film, we've had it all. Whatever it is that you want to know about, we've probably talked about it here. So, you know, today we've decided to do this without uh, without a guest. It's just just Tanana Reeve and I talking. You know, with her relationship, you know, we both write science fiction. We've both written horror. But she is the horror expert and I'm the science fiction expert. Right. Absolutely. you know, it's it's by training and inclination and 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 work patterns that would seem to be true. So, you know, she was the star of the show on the horror, and now she was going to interview me. And I have no idea what she's going to ask me. Neither so, do I. So this should be exciting. No, but, uh, but before so we get started, before we get started, let's play our voicemail. Oh, from, from Gene Graham, who this is going to get you pumped up because he got so excited from the last time we did this. Here's what he had to say. My name is Gene Graham, and I am a filmmaker here in Brooklyn, New York. And I you know, came across your podcast, and I just really want to say thank you so much for it because you know, I'm wrestling with a horror script that has a lot of action in it. And I, felt, I thought that this was really good in talking about action versus horror. You know, this your podcast really confirms some of my instincts, like, you know, characters evolving and trying to learn things as they go before they get to the end of the movie. Yeah, it just, this just was really helpful at a time when I probably need a little bit of encouragement here to dig a little deeper and also just keep going for it, even if I'm not 100% sure where it's, you know, how it all is supposed to, to go. So again, thanks so much for this and, and continued success for you. Isn't that great? That's very nice. Somebody get that man a grant. You know, <laughs> he needs to complete his film, but like, if you're just working on your screen, on your screenplay, you got to do what he just said. Basically you just keep barreling, you know, just yeah. keep until at least you've got that first draft. Absolutely. So I've I've heard this story, but the listeners haven't. Let me let me just start at the beginning, Stephen Barnes. <laughs> what first attracted you to science fiction and why? Well, it's I think that I just like monsters and spaceships and stuff like that. I think that the most science fiction fans are people who are dreamers. They're not entirely satisfied with the world as they see and so they enjoy you know peeking under the edges or looking back you know history fans history buffs like to look back science fiction fans like to look sort of under the edge and into the future Mm -hmm. so i was you know i grew up raised by my mother and my sister and in a a culture that not exactly prized me so i was eager to see other options and space and time machines and stories of monsters and so forth and so on appealed to me. Not too long ago, we had a fantastic time at the Ray Bradbury Center. And wow. In Indianapolis. In Indianapolis. And Steve gave a great talk with Dr. Charles Johnson. And during that talk, Steve talked about personal encounters he had with the science fiction great Ray Bradbury. And actually some letters we probably need to find that need to be in the Ray Bradbury Center. But can you talk about how you as a young writer got encouragement from this giant of now, a man? Those letters will be in my papers. <laughs> well, copies then. Yeah, I need Ray Bradbury more than he needs me. <laughs> um, so basically, I was a fan of Ray Bradbury's work, you know, his his written stories and, you know, movies like The Illustrated Man and the adaptations of them in early EC comics. And I was, I was probably just about 28, maybe a little younger than that. And I, I had written a Halloween story and I saw that Ray Bradbury was doing a autographing at a bookstore. And so my girlfriend at the time, my first wife, Tony, was an artist and she created artwork to go along with the story and we printed a copy of the story and put it in a really nice folder along with her artwork and we went to his signing and gave it to him 
And about six weeks, he was very gracious, very nice. And about six weeks later, I actually got a letter back from him. Wow. Know, uh, you know, praising the story and encouraging me to write. And the truth is, is that was the first the first encouragement I ever had from a professional writer to let me know that maybe there was something in my work, in my mind, in my heart that was worth developing. And my understanding, it meant the world to me. My understanding is he's done that for countless young writers. You know, it was incredibly special, but it was also just the way he was. And so, you know, what an amazing man. And he made a difference in my life. That's for sure. Well, from what I remember, that was the first of three letters you would receive from Ray Bradbury. And I don't think a lot of people can say that who weren't in his like inner. inner yeah, it was, it was two, yeah, I guess I did get three letters from him. Yeah. You know, and maybe we can figure out, we'll put a, a, a link. We'll, maybe we'll create a, a, a link of some kind to the to the talk I gave at the Ray Bradbury Center. If you want to hear more. So that people can find it easily. Yeah. We can certainly add that to the uh, program notes. Sure. So, so there is so much to unpack here. And, you know, of course, the focus of this podcast is to, to help other people be the best science fiction writers they can be or write the best science fiction they can write. I like your distinction between me as a horror expert and you as a science fiction expert, because I have written some science fiction, but I don't consider myself a science fiction writer, if that makes sense. My philosophy has always been a, a spoonful of science helps the story go down. And then you have people who are hard sci-fi writers. And then you have people like the late Octavia Butler, who, who are social science fiction writers. No, but and Octavia was not just a social science fiction writer. She wrote biological science fiction. She was a hard did. science fiction writer. She got True. her details right. You're a science fiction writer in the sense that you, like, you might like a setting. Mm-hmm. You want to do something. And it requires some science fictional kind of stuff. Yes. And you do your research for it. But what you don't do is see a, see a phenomenon. You know, come across a a comment about something in the sciences and then follow that out. So, well, what would happen if you followed this this assumption? What well, how is this rooted in physics? That's not your that's not your Well, book. I will say I won't I don't go into how is it rooted in physics, but like cloning, for example, I read an article about cloning and the technology for cloning, and then that led me to asking myself, why would people do this? Which is what I mean, which no, is that is that is a science fiction writer thinks that way. Okay. Now, that's, that is that that actually is. It's going from the the science, the fact, the observable or projected phenomenon, and then asking how might this relate to our lives, or who you know what what human being might be interested in this, who might this affect. To that end, classically, science fiction has three questions, as defined by Robert Heinlein: What if, if only, and if this goes on? You know, what if the world you know, what if someone invented faster than light travel? Lots of movies about that. You know, mm-hmm. what if a black hole was a doorway to another dimension, et cetera, et cetera. If only Abraham Lincoln hadn't been shot and so you get alternate history and so forth. Or if only someone come, developed uh, an inoculation against death or something like this. And Ooh. then if, if this goes on, would be something on the lines of if the population continues to increase, if we continue to degrade our environment, if we continue to study this and get these results, what might happen further down that path? So those three questions are probably the most respected questions. And in terms of hard science fiction, Robert Heinlein is, you know, considered the dean. He was one of the three big ones, you know, uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, Isaac Asimov, and uh, Arthur C. Clarke, I think it was, were the three big names of hard science fiction. And their stuff was rooted deeply in the sciences. Clarke was, I think he had honorary doctorates. He was certainly mentally working at that level. Isaac Asimov was a PhD. Uh, and Robert Heinlein was another one of these people who really, really brilliant uh, and understood technology from the engineering point of view, especially, but he understood human systems really, really well, probably better than either Asimov or Clark. Uh, Clark would have had the most, would have had the edge in terms of astrophysics. Asimov would have the edge in terms of biological sciences. But all three of them were amazing and really created the foundation for science fiction as we understand it today. You know, I used to teach in an MFA program, and I don't want anybody to get mad at me because there is a bunch of genre bias continuing to this day in MFA programs. But what I will say 
I think I notice as a phenomenon, and I'm curious about your thoughts about this, honey, in, in the manuscripts you read by learning writers, as I like to call them, is that the writers who are most likely to be influenced by film and television in their stories were science fiction. So one thing I noticed was that the students who were most likely to be influenced by what seemed like television and film, more so than literature, were students who were writing specifically science fiction, maybe fantasy too, but I'll stick with science fiction here, you know, where they grew up loving Star Trek or they loved Star Wars. So that was sort of where their foundation was. And because of that, it it had a tendency sometimes to be more derivative than some of the other work I was reading. What, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes learning science fiction writers make? As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, first of all, I would not call Star Wars science fiction. Star Wars is fantasy that uses science fiction image systems. They could care less about the science. They That's could true. care less about the science in that universe. It's all about, you know, wizards and swords and dragons. You know, and the problem that people have is, first of all, they don't understand that difference. Mm. Uh, And secondly, with something like Star Trek, Star Trek started out as hard science fiction. But at this point, it's got fast and light travel and time travel and cloning and on and on and psychic powers and godlike beings. So it basically is science fiction stretched to the absolute limit, and they don't care beyond a certain degree. It's really in the service of the story, which is what all fiction should be. I think that the first generation of science fiction writers are people like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and so forth. And you're talking about people who understood fiction, literature, and they understood science. Yes. The next generation, you know, Olaf Stapleton and 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 even coming up to to Robert Heinlein and so forth, understood science fiction. They'd read science fiction and they loved science fiction. And the ones who did the best also understood 
the sciences and they understood literature. Yes. But they weren't they were standing on the foundation that was built before them. Around the 60s, we'd been tilling these vineyards long enough for there to be some real quality. You know, if, if you put enough, you throw enough mud at the wall, some of it will stick. If, if during the era where it's the big idea, it was more, did you create a, a world that we've never been to? Have you, are you describing a machine that will do something nobody has ever done? It wasn't and, and if I can just jump in for a second, I have to shout out Samuel R. Delaney, who came of age in the 1960s and, and talk about big ideas and also that fusion of high literary talent with those big ideas. Well, Chip, Chip was one of the people who changed the field in the 60s when the new wave came in. And now you're talking about people like Ted Sturgeon and Ray Bradbury had come in in the 50s. And he mm-hmm. he was doing pulp, pulpy stories, but by the 60s was starting to evolve in that sense. But people like Harlan Ellison and Norman Spinrad and Ursula K. Le Guin and Joanna Russ and other things were bringing a literary quality and a willingness to experiment with language as well as scientific ideas and then politics. You know, yes. for instance, feminist politics like Joanna Russ with the female man and so forth and so on. The Chip was known for his, the clarity of his language and he was a, he was a spectacular wordsmith and so he was he was really doing something there he was and i think that to a certain degree he was showing off you know to a certain degree he knew that he was the very first black science fiction writer to really make a name for himself in the field and i think that that creates a certain amount of self-consciousness mm-hmm. you can't just be a storyteller at that point you have to be terrific well, yeah. he certainly was. <laughs> yeah, he really was. But he also was not really welcome in the field. I mean, he, he was not going to be a best-selling science fiction writer. He could not support himself in the way some of these other writers could. And uh, definitely encountered racism. And by the way, I just want to add, he Samuel R. Delaney is still living. We're, we're talking about the work he did in the 60s and the past tense, not yes. him. Well, he, but he, he left the field uh, yes. and went into queer fiction and academia. I believe he's published something in science fiction in the last decade. You know, it. I don't know how much, but it seems to me that I heard that he'd done something new and original. But that, you know, that would be very, very nice. He's semi-retired at this point, of course. But the field continued to evolve in that sense. So what I would say to writers right now is if you are interested in writing science fiction, which of the sciences are you prepared to become expert in? You know, you need to know something. I mean, I would say that the the ideal situation would be to have the equivalent of an AA degree, you know, in the science that you're interested in writing about. Uh, You could probably get that by reading five kids books on the subject and then five adult books on that subject. And, you know, then hitting yourself with a lot of a ton of YouTube videos and stuff like this. So you become kind of a pocket expert. There's something that you know about because science fiction, more than most uh, genres, demands specialized knowledge. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and you, you need to like if John Grisham is not known as a pro stylist, he's known for for helping us understand the law, mm-hmm. tricks of the law. And so if you know enough about the sciences to be able to lecture on them a little bit, you now have the potential to get in the game. So I would say that you want to understand the sciences and then you want to be reading constantly, not just science fiction, but the best literature you can get your hands on. Amen. The the very best, you know, and, you know, that it's the best literature that you can enjoy if it makes your head hurt just a little bit reading it, then you're probably pushing yourself, which is which is good. And that that's really the advice that I'd give, to have a sense of what the universe is, the sense of the physics of the universe, so that you're not calling yourself science fiction, which when what you're really doing is writing fantasy that has robots. Fantasy in space or fantasy with yeah, robots. I, you know, there is a lot of that. And it's not that fantasy is easier. It is not, but it is different. And to me, fantasy is the poetry of human of the human heart, you know, using using various metaphors. And imaginary creatures and places. Yeah, imaginary creatures and places. Science fiction really is about 
what is the universe? If there are two things to write about, one, you know, who are who are we and what is out there? You know, who am I and and what is the nature, the ethical structure of the universe and the material structure of the universe? Fantasy tends to be more about who am I, mm. uh, whereas science fiction t- tends to be more about what is true, you know, and and, and what is the universe. But these these qualifications and distinctions are very rubbery. There's actually a lot of give in the system. But, you know, do, don't just get, if you're going to write literary science fiction, or if you're going to write books and stories, you need to read books and stories. Don't just watch movies. Oh, my God, no. You will get hypnotized by the image systems, by the special effects, the VR, the the virtual, not the virtual, the CGI, the swooping and the exploding and the the blasters and so forth and so on. Whereas what you really need to look at and start understanding is how do they develop their ideas? What are the ideas at the core of all of this? What are they doing? And then once you take a look at, like, for instance, you take a look at something like Soylent Green which is done from a story by Harry Harrison called Make Room, Make Room, that is about an overcrowded earth. So that's that's a, if this goes on, you know, if we continue to increase our population, then we're going to end up in, with a certain set of problems. And what they did then was they chose a slice of that book and then they had they wanted to make a movie and they need to make they wanted to make a movie that would attract stars so I wanted to track, you know, Charlton Heston for this role, Edward G. Robinson for this role, and Paula Kelly for this role, and Chuck Connors for that role. So you you have to ask yourself, what is, what is it that an actor wants to sink his teeth into? Charlton Heston was very happy to do science fiction. He did several science fiction movies. So he had a little bit of that bigger-than-life character that allows you to have a star in a world that is troubled, and we identify with his humanity in the midst of, you know, the world having been wiped out or, you know, an earthquake that destroys Los Angeles or, you know, the planet of the apes or whatever. You know, if you're going to go for science fiction in a film sense, then you have to have the idea, but you also have to show how that idea affects a human being so that there will be some actor who's attracted to the role. Yeah, and I think that's that all of the what you just said was missing from some of those student papers that I'm thinking about the depth of understanding of a branch of the sciences. And also, you know, a lot of people admire uh, who are listening now probably admire Octavia Butler. I think, you know, you and Octavia Butler are my favorite science fiction writers. And people think of Kindred and it's like, but Kindred is not science fiction. Kindred isn't, I mean, it's, it's, it's time travel. It's more fantasy, I would say, isn't it? It's fantasy. I mean, yeah. you know, basically the time travel only existed to create a scenario. She didn't care. If she'd, if she'd been a physicist, then maybe she would have, you know, had this woman, you know, working in a laboratory somewhere where she stumbles in the midst of some super collider beam. You know, but that's, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's, that's how she would have written it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So yes, what, what matters is that you have something unspecified that keeps knocking this woman back into the past. It could be, you know, time travel. There's no, there are very few serious speculations about the nature of a time machine, the the possibility of a time machine, like what H.G. Wells said. So time, time travel can be science fiction, but most often it is a gimmick in order to tell a story. And Uh, yeah, she doesn't care about it. You know, but for, it's it, it's magic for all practical purposes. Yeah, for I'm sorry, and for readers who are not familiar somehow with Kendrick, I just want to let you know it's about a contemporary woman who gets transported back into the antebellum slavery period. And we did a whole couple podcast episodes about it when the, the series came out. And if you want to look at Octavia Butler wearing her science expert hat, look at something like the Xenogenesis series, which starts with Dawn. That's where she's getting deep into biology. She did research trips. Right. You know, and even something along the lines of, oh God, what's the one with Doro and Anyanwe? Oh, Wild Seed. Yeah, Wild Seed. Wild Seed is sort of borderline science fiction in that we're willing to admit the possibility of psychic abilities. Okay. So it's not magic. Although she's not interested in talking about 
you know, uh, neurological connections that might you know, do this and quantum connections between this and this and entanglement. No, that's, that's not what she's about. She's telling a story about a woman in a multi-century duel with an immortal sorcerer of who is insanely dangerous. And that story, I think it fits within science fiction because of her interest in the biological sciences and the research that she did there. She had a very logical mind. Uh, now, fantasy writers can have extremely logical minds, too. Quite often, fantasy writers are extremely knowledgeable about history. Yes. And world myth patterns and so forth and so on. But, you know, the distinction that what if, if only if this goes on, tying it to physics and biology is the core of the hard science fiction writing. Now, you have writers like Harlan Ellison who wrote fantasy really with science fiction image systems, but sometimes he did do science fiction. He was, he was a master at what he did. I mean, he's way yeah. above, above the above the bar in that sense. And he did write science fiction, but he was not interested in science except as a way to to spin his stories and create his poetry. In, in a lot of ways, he, he had some similarities with Ray Bradbury in that sense. Only an angry Ray Bradbury. Oh, very angry. <laughs> As opposed very... to a, a loving and gentle Ray Bradbury. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, for a moment, I was imagining morphing uh, that personality of Ray Bradbury into Harlan Ellison. And well, what I would like, I know that uh, Harlan, Harlan drove Ray up to San Francisco and possibly some other things a few times. I would love to have had a microphone in the car you know, during that. <laughs> what, what was that conversation like? But you know, so yeah, so Ray Bradbury is a kinder, gentler Harlan Ellison, and Harlan El and, and Harlan Ellison is an angrier <laughs> Ray Bradbury. <laughs> so you know, with any very research-oriented work, and don't be daunted, reader. Research is fun. You you, you learn new things, and and it, he's not talking about you know years and years. It's just a dive, so that if you're writing something set in space. You've done your due diligence and you're not relying on producers of Star Trek to show you what that's like. But I know from experience, even not writing science fiction, writing a historical novel, even that you can get lost in your research. Yeah. And another thing I see that happens sometimes with learning writers is what we call ba -ba -ba -bum, info dump, 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 dump. <laughs> Info dump, and oh, I'll just oh, give an oh, example, and maybe you can expand, honey, is let's say your point of view character is new to the planet, which is great to have your point of view character to be new wherever, like Dawn, she has no idea what's going on, just like the reader. So it's a, it's a nice way to orient yourself as the writer into the story. You don't have to know everything. They learn as, as you learn. But then you have the, your ignorant character meet someone who and say, well, as you know, on our planet... We have two moons and they are in these cycles and blah, 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 you know. That'd be like writing, you know, a, in a James Bond novel, Q suddenly starts explaining the the internal combustion engine. Right. You know, no, it's a car. It has machine guns. Get on with the story. You know, it's <laughs> you if you need you had to you had to do research. Your reader does not need to know all the research you did, but you also need to give them enough detail so that they trust you. Yes. You know, it, it, that they can feel like, oh, you did your research. They want to feel that. They want the author to have authority. Yes. But you have to be careful. And this is a, I mean, the only way you're going to learn how to do this is by reading a lot. And mm -hmm. you actually take a look and see. You know, how much detail do you have there? I mean, you could take a look at, at Moby Dick and say that Herman Melville obviously did vast amounts of research into whaling and that information is all there. You know, why can't I do, you know, put that much information about this? You can and you will discover after you do that to what degree does the audience go along with your ride. If, if they love that, then you have found your audience and you have found a way of expressing yourself that works. But if they reject that, then you might want to look at squeezing that down. In general, asking yourself what is the minimum amount of information your reader needs in order to appreciate the emotional beats of your stories. Which yes, that's it. It's all going to be about the emotions. Um, that first or second generation of science fiction that was all about the big idea was primarily in, enjoyed by... The kind of guys, and is primarily guys, 
who loved engineering, you know, and they looked at those big ideas and that got them emotionally, you know, going and got them hot. In that sense, they actually had an emotional connection to ideas in that sense. Most people want to have an emotional connection to human beings or events, things that, you know, so it's the, the big thing is a place, is a playing field on which a human drama takes place. And you might need to think it through very, very carefully, but you don't need to tell your reader everything you know. No. And you also think about how do you convey the information? You know, how do you sprinkle it in like seasoning? Like I tell my students, if you if you dump the whole salt shaker in the scene, it's not going to taste good. <laughs> but a little bit of salt <laughs> sprinkled here, a little bit of salt. So maybe, OK, maybe the first person or creature or droid they encounter can tell them a little bit of just a little bit of information. And then well, there if are you, things- if, look, if you've got to have to tell information. Make the reader want to know. Create a situation where the information, you know, make the reader ask a question. If the reader asks a question, you set up a situation where the reader is going to say, well, how did that happen? Now the reader wants that robot to tell you how it happened. You know, and, you know they, they want the spinning rings in the time machine where the computer tells, you know, how did the Eloy and the Morlocks come into existence? They want that mad scientist to collar somebody and explain how Godzilla, you know, how the oxygen destroyer is going to take out Godzilla. You know, the, 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 the audience should be saying, thank goodness. That's why it works. Thank goodness. Now I understand because otherwise they're going to sit back and say info dump. Boring. Boring. Yeah. Yeah. If they don't want to know they're bored. So that's something that comes with practice. All these things we're talking about, are things that come with practice. And I love what Steve said about how all of that is in service to the emotional beats. And hearkening back to what we were talking about with writing great horror, science fiction, believe it or not, also needs great, realistic, and memorable characters. The late, great Greg Bear, to me, is is an example of a writer who wrote hard science fiction, but also knew how to paint realistic, compelling characters like Darwin's Radio. I love that book. Well, um, he, he was a very humane man. Is just, you know, just honestly one of the most open hearts that I know of in the field. And so, of course, he was going to write those sorts of things. He was interested in ideas, but he was really interested in w- what is it to be human? In that, in that sense, Greg was you know, just wonderful, wonderful writer. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you too, Stephen Barnes, you too are a character driven writer. You like action. So you, you go yeah, toward really action science fiction, but within that, or I should say, and within that, because characters are necessary for action. <laughs> you have that heart also where you want to create characters who with beating hearts, who yeah, actually, whose experiences will drive readers through the story. In uh, the life writing textbook thing I did, you know, 20, 25 years ago, I talked about how a story is a Swiss watch tied to a beating heart. Mm, nice. the, the plot mechanics and the, the watch casing, which is the world that you build, all that stuff is real. But if you're not connected to a heart, who cares? You know, they tell me a story about somebody in the gears of the machine. Who Who is that person? Now, one of the things we wanted to touch on is science fiction and horror. So, oh, yeah, we were going to so, talk about that. Well, so good. Let's make sure that we go there. Yeah, let's go there right now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so here's what I would say about that. Science fiction is primarily about the, the head, it's ideas, and horror is about the heart, largely, you know, because fear. Science, horror is a genre, but it's also a super genre in the sense that you can combine horror with anything. I mean, truth and comedy is a super genre. You know? Two great tastes that go together. <laughs> so you can have horror that is uh, human, psycho, you know, a psychological horror. You can have horror that is survival horror, where somebody is caught, you know, in the middle of a fire or dealing with an animal or something like that. You can have, you know, what would be an example of that? What was that? The the Leo Neeson survival movie with the, against the wolves. 
Oh, the gray. And I don't, you know, there are a lot of people who probably don't consider that horror. It's, you know, but, but yes, I love, it really pushes all my buttons, but survival horror is also you're in the woods and there's a demon after you kind of thing. So now you're touching on supernatural horror. Yeah. Supernatural horror. Or super normal horror. H.P. Lovecraft did not do the supernatural. He wasn't talking about the living dead. He was talking mostly, was not, he was mostly talking about in his most famous work, talking about what happens when, when a portal opens between our universe and another universe. And there are beings out there who are so much more powerful than us that they barely even notice that we're here. That's, you know, the sort of super normal horror. Uh, and then there's scientific horror, stuff like the fly. There's no yes. supernatural element in the fly, but it's horrible because you have a very empathizable character, a very identifiable character in Jeff Goldblum, who makes a horrible mistake and pays for it with his life and almost pays for it with his soul. You know, and then you have movies like Alien, which is one of the most frightening movies I've ever made, which was made by somebody who understood You've ever seen science fiction. Yeah. What did I say? Made. Man, I'm sorry. Projecting into the future, darling. Well, you know, it's, it's it is. I think it's one of the most frightening movies ever made. Okay, that's, that's oh, fine. ever made. Okay, ever made. So, what you had is Dan O'Bannon and Ron Chisette understood clearly understood both science fiction and horror because the life cycle of the alien was fascinating. I, mean, I, I it's hard to say at this point who was responsible for what because people always take responsibility, but I'm going to take the position that the basic aspect of the monster was created in that original script. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the ability to shoot it in a way that triggered horror as opposed to adventure would be, you know, would would come out of O'Bannon taking the director. Who was the director? Uh, who was the director of, of, of Alien? Wasn't it Ridley Scott? Yes, Ridley Scott. Okay, so let's back up. Rosebud. Okay, so Dan O'Bannon told Ridley Scott, the director of the movie, that if he wanted to understand horror, he should see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And if you look at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's one of the most absolutely grueling horror. Absolutely grueling. You have a group of kids who have no idea what they're stepping into. So Alien is a group of basically truck drivers, space truck drivers, with no idea what they're stepping into. The the action of the film is basically it, the terror from beyond space. You know, just just a, a B movie from the 1950s starring Marshall Thompson and uh, Cra- Ray Crash Corrigan in his last screen role. And it's basically about a monster on a ship that, you know, they're just killing everybody. And the that was an adventure story. But you can take a look at it and say, oh, this is how you could have increased the horror. Small space, okay? People that you care about. Mm-hmm. Terrible things being done to them. A sense of... I can't even, you know, one of the things they did in the movie Alien was they kept, science fiction thrives on information. Mm-hmm. If, we can, if we can chew the data, if we can crunch the data, we are thinking about it and we're not afraid, which is one of the reasons why, you know, the, the Spanish circle in fencing, this complex geometric circle that you saw in Mask of Zorro on the floor with Antonio Banderas, is this complex geometric symbol that you use to measure distance between yourself and an opponent when you're fencing. And by engaging the frontal lobes to think about the mathematics of it, you're staying out of the limbic system. And, and so you're not so terrified that you can't move. When horror deliberately limits the amount of information you have about something like they did in Alien, you never saw that creature fully until the very, very end. So you didn't know what you were dealing with. You didn't know why it was killing you. You didn't know what it wanted. You didn't know if it had any vulnerabilities. You had no idea. And these people were not scientists and they went further. They crippled these people by having their technical guy, their science officer, betray them. So the, the person who should have known what to do was actually working for the company and was sacrificing these human beings to test this alien. So what you had is a group of human beings who, within the context of the movie, were doing everything smart people could do to try to survive, but they were totally overmatched. They had no idea. Right. What they- horrifying. And, and, horrifying. and yeah. 
And the way you make that more a straight science fiction movie, to your point, is if it's more strictly about we've discovered this new creature, we already know some things about it. This is its habitat. Right. This is how it lays its eggs. Right. <laughs> this, this is what it's, it's trying to do to us. It would become a oh oh don't don't cut it. It has acid for blood. Right. <laughs> then, yeah, but then you understand a, an in, exercise in, in the class that I took with Robert McKee. He talked about that about <laughs> the fact that the acid for blood is the moment at which the audience said, these people are in deep shit. Right. What happened is at that point, when he has acid for blood, it isn't just a matter of now we understand why we can't just blow it up. It was a matter of this is not a man in a suit. This is a creature with a totally alien physiology, a totally alien reproductive cycle, a totally alien psychology. These people are screwed. And the mystery and the dread of that is what made it scary, right. as opposed to more just a sense of wonder, like, like, oh, look, new life. You're also wearing a T-shirt that is another science fiction horror movie that yes. is most often talked about as horror, but definitely is science fiction. And that's Jordan Peele's Get Out. Get Out. Yeah. So Get Out could easily have had a fantasy premise. It could have been a coven of witches doing yep. this. Yeah, but instead of that, through you know bringing in a a totally science fictional premise, the coagula, I believe it is, you know the idea, yeah, the coagula procedure, yes, the coagula procedure, and you even have a movie in which the the info dump is in a movie where our character is tied to a chair, so our concern is with his survival, and we're almost accidentally getting the info dump. And by then we're dying to know what's going on. That's right. To, to your earlier point. So we 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 want to know what's going on. We care about this character. He's struggling to get out of the chair at the same time while the video is playing. So now you have a situation where it's allowable to say something that will be boring if it was just a conversation. You, I've seen the same thing countless times where people are sitting around a, a dinner table. And two people hate each other, and one of them's fingers is coming closer to the knife that they're going to grab and plunge and throw to the other one. And while we're watching the, the byplay, somebody's explaining something complex about the plot. Oh, so interesting. You're, pick, you're picking it up. You're paying attention to the tension between the people. And sometimes it could be a matter of somebody, you know, playing with someone's leg under the table. Oh, so that's good. We're distracted by the sexual tension or the survival tension while simultaneously we're almost peripherally absorbing the info dump. Disguising you know? the info dump. I disguising love the info dump. That's right. I'm going to have to do that in the script that I'm working on right now because there's a lot of information that is cultural information and metaphysical information, so forth and so on. So figuring out at what time, what's the perfect time where the audience is going to say, I want to know this, and then finding a way to do it while there's some other business going on to, so that we're breaking it up and it doesn't become monotonous. Science fiction and fantasy people have the responsibility of doing this because we're talking about other when. We're talking about another world. We're talking about another context. So we have to grounded in our world. It's nobody has ever done this better than Stephen King. Stephen King goes from the totally mundane world to a world of other when one little step at a time. And he takes you there. I've watched him do it dozens of times. He starts in the normal world and then slowly gives you little clues that that world is just a little stranger and then a little stranger, a little stranger before you know it, you are, you know, the, the, the road is out of sight and he's leading you through the, through the high, high grass and, there, and you, all you can do is trust him. He's leading you into the woods. Let me ask you this then yeah. to that point. If you're writing a science fiction novel, let's say it starts in the year 2060. Yeah. And, and we're in a remote location or a new kind of location facing new technology. How do you ground the reader enough based on their experiences so that they attach? Like, like It's not going to be based on their experiences. You do it based upon their biologically or psychologically programmed obsessions, survival, you know, mm. the, the ten, 10 tons of Thronosaur was almost on me. I had just a second to grab my blaster and roll under a rock. You're going to read oh, it. Oh, well, okay. okay. Making um, it up on the fly. <laughs> you have, 
you know, the, 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 the spaceman and the space woman crash land on a rock. And your question is, well, how long is it going to be before these two get together? You know, mm-hmm. so something. So you start with basic things like survival, where they're going to get food, how they're going to find shelter, are they going to get sex? You know, what are they doing? Why are they doing it? The to start with something that is mundane that we all understand as a way of anchoring us into a world where it's it's strange and unusual is a very common technique and i would definitely suggest it what you do t- what you don't want to do is start in a strange setting with strange people doing a strange thing that nobody understands you do that you know using strange vocabulary mm. there are readers who will dig that there really are. There are readers who will who will go into page after page of that because they figure eventually they'll figure out the puzzle and then they'll be able to. And if that's the kind of book that you enjoy, that's the kind of story that you enjoy, go right ahead. But understand that I would suggest that you start the way Ray Bradbury did, which is to start with very simple stories that are very direct they're not terribly convoluted until you sold several of those. Then you know that you have your basics mastered. Then you move on to the more complex stories and you go wherever you want to go. But to get into the game, publishing one of the, the major publications, I would suggest you know something about the sciences, you understand something about human psychology, you can create believable characters, you write simple stories following some basic extrapolation. You know, my first science i'm trying to figure out what my first science fiction my first two published stories uh one was psychological horror and the other one was it was based on it was called endurance vial about a guy who who accidentally uh, finds a breathing pattern that makes him a better runner but the trouble is that, that once he starts running he can't stop so it's it's super science it's science fictional playful it wasn't entirely serious Mm-hmm. It worked pretty well, and I and I took that and put it into a book later on, the Kundalini Equation. Yes, you, you did. You know, it was it was suggesting that at the higher levels of of mental disciplines, there are psychic experiences that that trigger things that people ordinarily discuss only in in horror, in in, in supernatural horror. So it's it's super normal in that sense, but it, it it's balancing on that edge where we're willing to admit psychic abilities, but we're not all, we're not prepared to accept ghosts. Got it. That's a great example. I mean, I was going to ask if you had a favorite science fiction story you wanted to talk about quickly, but, or that might be one since you're, yeah, you're returning to that one. So uh, that is definitely a favorite. And and great example. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, and hopefully you have, just know <laughs> that this is what we do. This is what the Life Writing Course is. The Life Writing Course is a series of lectures, it's videos, it's recordings, it's PDFs. Every week you get a different module. It's a year-long course at Life Writing Premium. And we definitely do have specific modules on writing science fiction, writing fantasy, writing horror, writing suspense, all that stuff for all different kinds of writers. And and Steve, you know, you mentioned 25 years ago, something you wrote in a life writing book. This is a program you have been working on since even long before you met me. So it's it's, true. You know, I would say that I've been working on life writing as a teaching pedagogy for at least 30 years. Yes. Uh, And have taught it to thousands of people. And I'm very proud of it. And it's been very successful in that sense. So there are other courses that that are out there that are terrific, but I'm going to be honest. I think that our course is wonderful, uh, and I hope that people go to www.lifewritingpremium.com and find out for yourself. It's a year writing premium prompts and lectures and interviews, and it's come straight from our hearts and our heads. So it's, this is the best we've got, and I would I would 100 be behind you checking it out. You pay by the month. So it's, you know, it's very, very flexible in that sense. If you love it, stay with us for the whole year. If you don't, go ahead and cancel and no harm, no foul. There you go. And the Life Writing Podcast is just one branch of the Life Writing Tree. (laughs) So anyway, this has been great. I, you know, 
we hear each other talk about writing a lot. And I saw your face kind of lighting up when I was talking about horror and my face was lighting up when you're talking about science fiction. And that's what makes it fun, keeps it sexy. Indeed. So everybody, you go on. I hope you've been inspired to make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.